0: For more information, visit www.novic.co.
1: Now, let's
0: jump into the episode.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novick Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, I have some great panelists, as always, especially the ever-lively Aaron Bush, co-founder of We've got Matt Dion on here, Novic contributor and founder of Always Scheming. And we've got a new face here, Mario Stefandis. And, and let me know if I uh, pronounced that correctly, Stefandis. i you know, it's, it's got a lot of owls in it. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, though? Yeah. It's closer
2: than 90% of people, so you're good. Um, yeah, so I'm Mario Stefanitas. Um, formerly uh, used to work uh, at Roundhill Investments uh, in uh, gaming research pretty much for three years. And then before that, I was uh, at BlackRock for three years in fixed income research. So I've kind of spent the last six years researching various things. And uh, I made the decision... Uh, late last year to pursue an MBA from Columbia Business School. So kind of just floating around, uh, prepping to do that. But the main thing I've done to, uh, you know, occupy myself and be useful in the world is uh, write for Navic for the last few months. Uh, I've been proud to write for uh, Navic Pro. And now that that's shuttered, uh, I've been writing for Navic Digest. And it's been awesome to be a part of the community that uh, you guys have created. So thank you.
0: Yeah, and if you watch or or read, what am I even saying? If you read Novic Digest, you'll see every week Mario is the is the guy who writes the the like the weekly deals section and just like all of all of the happenings of what's going on in the venture world, the public markets world. Plus, you know, writes a couple times a month about all sorts of various companies and topics too. So, so yeah, Mario's done great great work for for Novik so far, and excited to have him on the the podcast today too.
1: Yeah, always going family here. And hopefully uh, those of you in the U.S. also had a great 4th of July as as we have just finished that here in the U.S. And of course, we got Mario, I think, uh, out of town at the moment, but hopefully celebrated as best he could. (laughs) But uh, definitely a good one. Uh, We've got some great topics as well today. Of course, as usual, Uh, lots lots of stuff going on in the games world. We've got some stuff about PlayStation opening up potentially to Roblox, Unity launching some AI platforms, Niantic with some unfortunate layoff news. Uh, a big square Enix update lots of stuff in there and uh, some revelations around everyone's favorite FTC trial that we'll get into uh, you know to make sure to continue that saga uh, but first uh, Aaron you want to talk a little bit about what we got going on over at Navik as well
0: yeah, so we are super excited to announce the launch of Novik's Open Gaming Research Initiative. And for those of you who have followed Novik for a while, you already know that we work really hard every week to provide you with great content about the business of gaming, primarily through our podcast here and the Navik Digest newsletter. But this initiative is going to take our free content and research efforts to the next level. And so our mission here is to create the number one destination for games industry research, and do so in a way that's incredibly open and enormously collaborative, but bring it all together in one easy-to-consume spot. So this effort will encompass what we already do with Digest and the podcast, but uh, what's exciting is that we're on the cusp of adding much, much more. So for one, you may have already seen us expand Digest um, that cadence to, to four times a week, but we're also adding monthly game deconstructions, bimonthly genre reports, monthly deep dives into important trends and companies, ongoing market research into public markets, deal making, Web3, UGC, and more. Um, and soon we're going to be adding a new tactics-driven segment to this podcast that will explore exactly how various games teams executed and succeeded. And there's even more that we want to, to get to, like events and community efforts that, that will build up. So really, all in all, we're adding a bunch more High quality research that we're really excited about. And the last thing I'll say is just that um, we're only able to do this because of two main reasons. One is because we have an incredible community of creators who are not only experts at what they do and that we're grateful to have around, but who are also passionate about learning in public. Um, And if that is something that you're interested in being a part of, just reach out and let us know. We always love um, building our team of people to work with and learn from um, and, and just collaborate with. Um, and then second, we're bringing on a dozen launch partners who are helping fund all of this expanded content creation. Um, but not only are they they funding it, but they're also super excited about the Open Gaming Research Initiative's mission and have a bunch of insights to share themselves. So um, you'll you'll learn more about those partners and you know, the, the weeks and months. To come. But if you want to learn any more right now about this mission, our amazing creators or or our new um launch partners, uh, or honestly just want to check out our new website, which we're as we're recording, is about coming out, but it's pretty cool and I'm excited about that. Just go to novic.co slash O G R I um and make sure you're signed up to receive all of the updates. So very excited to get rolling on this new bigger and better initiative. And I hope everyone listening um, is excited too.
1: Yeah, a lot of good stuff to to look forward to. And obviously all of us as well uh, write for the the newsletter and lots of good stuff. I think at this point, like people are going to have to switch to a four-day work week. Uh, just to have enough time to be able to read all of this, like <laughs> <laughs> get that three day weekend in there, uh, which, you know, that's great. Like, it, it's honestly even like almost sometimes too much content for I think all of us to keep up with, which is, uh, is a fantastic problem to have. So, definitely make sure to also check out, you know, all of the, all of the sponsors, all the people helping support that. You know, make sure to even just bounce to their website for a minute, check out what they got going on, just so that they see you know, some some definite interest uh, from, from everyone. So we can keep doing that sort of thing. And obviously, you know, as Aaron mentioned, you know, there'll be more news coming out as we get rolling with that, but uh, definitely keep an eye out for it. Make sure, if you're not already, for some weird reason, especially if you stumbled on this through YouTube or something, make sure you're subscribed to Novix newsletter because, uh, yeah, it's going to be bursting through your inbox, as, as Aaron said. Uh, you're probably going to have too much to read, but it, it's worth it. But on to the actual discussion topics here, where we're just going to talk instead of reading right now. Uh, PlayStation... Potentially opening up to Roblox. What do you think about that, Matt?
3: Yeah, I'll kick this off with a quick update here. So this will be, um, you know, no surprise to anyone who listens to this podcast that we have news coming from the Microsoft Activision trial. Um, so this was this was a revelation that came out of those hearings um, that uh, PlayStation, uh, Sony, and PlayStation are potentially opening up to Roblox. So if you follow Roblox you know that they're available on basically every other platform. You can get it on your PC, mobile phone, even on Xbox. Um, but Roblox has intentionally uh, been held back from PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5. Um, what they say is mostly due to the, the console's young user base and uh, wanting to protect those, those users. But the revelations coming out of this um, trial is that um, there are now talks happening that that might be relaxed it sounds like sony um is uh i should say sony quote has reviewed those policies and relaxed a little on this this is coming from jim ryan uh, of sony uh he said they've been conservative for too long and now we are, are currently engaging with people at roblox um so i thought that was interesting um in conjunction with um a piece that i mentioned i think uh one or two podcasts ago whenever i was last on was that Uh, roblox was opening up to um older experiences for 17 plus uh players so i think this you know the previous concern was about protecting their users now they're opening up a little bit to more mature audiences um and this is just another move in that direction um and then you know one interesting parallel i thought was when sony was kind of the last holdout on crossplay too um and sort of like the just the business opportunity and the Huge, like market of players, force their hand to to participate and like not leave that money on the table. Essentially, um, so yeah, I mean that that's that's basically the update. I think it's interesting. Uh, obviously, Roblox, a company to continue to watch, but um, you know, on the other the other end of this deal, Sony kind of slowly opening up to more um, ecosystems, platforms on its own platform.
1: Didn't uh, PlayStation already have Fortnite, which is kind of like... You were talking about cross-platform and stuff like that. I remember that was a big deal with that. Um, I mean, wouldn't that have already kind of opened up a more mature, in theory, uh, platform? Like, more more so than Roblox? Uh,
3: yeah, certainly. Um, it's I, I guess the analogy was more about, like, Sony being the last person to kind of join whatever, like... Movement or initiative that's happening, um, sort of having their hand forced from just like the tremendous amount of money they're leaving on the table,
0: yeah. Also, Roblox um, is coming to Oculus too, or the Quest, I should say, right? Like that's coming up pretty soon as well. That'll be that'll be pretty exciting. So, yeah, nice little little tailwinds here, um, for Roblox, and yeah, and as you're saying, Matt, especially if they can start to build more content for the aged up audience, I think those would probably. Perform better on all these other console experiences instead of just um, primarily mobile, too.
2: Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, Roblox, um, Fortnite skews young, but Roblox skews really young. Like, the majority of Roblox users are under the age of 12. And they've been trying to build their older demographic for a while now, um, partly to sell ads. It's really hard to sell ads to people that aren't even teenagers yet for like, legal reasons and obvious reasons. Uh, and tapping into PlayStation, which is arguably the oldest demographic of the three major consoles, um, is a huge win, I think, for both parties.
1: Well, I guess we'll have to see how that launch goes. Uh, if, yeah. if it does, I mean, I imagine they might announce it at some point. As, as you said, Matt, this was kind of a revelation, right, from the trial and not like a, an announcement from Sony?
3: Yeah, just to be clear, like, it's just uh, the news is that discussions are ongoing and PlayStation has kind of relaxed their approach to this. But nothing official has been announced.
1: Cool. Well, I guess we'll have to see where that goes. I'm sure, you know, Roblox community out there excited about the possibility, uh, if they're PlayStation fans as well, maybe having to play it on their phone for the moment or they're on their computer. But uh, but yeah, lots lots of cool stuff. Uh, Speaking of, of platforms doing interesting things, Unity launching some AI platforms.
0: Yeah, so Unity has been bit by both the AI and the AR VR bug over the past month, and so despite you know absolutely no financial updates over that time, uh, and and of course the last one <laughs> you know a couple months ago was quite poor. Um, Unity stock, you know, even so, is still up about fifty percent over the past month as a result of a couple um, announcements. The first was when Apple announced the Vision Pro and that Unity would be a partner. Unity's stock shut up, um, even though it'll be many years before this device actually uh, truly scales. Um, And quite honestly, it's just kind of funny to me because Unity would have been there anyways, especially given Apple's poor relationship with Epic. So that was kind of a dumb stock move (laughs) at the time, uh, in my opinion. But um, this past week, wave number two hit, uh, which is AI. And Unity has been writing the AI buzz for a while now, ever since it kind of vaguely announced that it was working on something, but this week we, we, we learned officially at least what the first steps are of, of what, what that is. And so for one, it launched a couple products. Uh, it announced Sentis, which is a cro- cross-platform runtime interface solution, basically enabling creators to embed AI with less latency issues into what they create. It also announced Muse, which is a set of tools that helps creators make real-time 3D content more efficiently. And these are you know, good, they're fine, and there will be more tools added in time. But honestly, the more interesting piece of the announcements this week was the launch of the AI Marketplace, which allows third parties to build and sell new tools on top of Unity. And given how much uh, AI innovation is exploding and moving at such a rapid pace right now, There's naturally going to be more interesting activity on the marketplace for the foreseeable future than anything probably that Unity will just create um, internally in house. Um, And so I think that, you know, that is exciting. It's good, logical next steps for the company. It obviously helps make sure the company is going to stay relevant as technology evolves. None of this should be a surprise. Like it was just kind of a matter of like, when, not if, they're gonna, you know, lean into like all the next waves, whether it's do hardware platforms or do software capabilities. Um, but uh, I do suspect that the hype will probably die back down, like moving fifty percent over the past month on things that should have been pretty apparent anyways. And again, it's just a matter of like when, not if. It feels a little much to me. Um, And so, especially at a time when, like, I don't know if you remember the last, like, (laughs) uh, like earnings call, it's just like, wow, okay, so Unity is actually shrinking in its number of large customers. And like, oh, it still has a lot more work to do in its streamlining efforts. So there are other, like, more business-specific factors at play that, you know, once people remember some of that, some of the hype here could could die down a little bit. But all in all, um, great to see Unity and the industry at large kind of take steps towards enabling these technologies and new devices that are going to be really exciting in the future.
1: Definitely, definitely something to look out for. Because uh, as you said, like, you know, the hype may die down, but people will still experiment with this stuff. So I think it's great, actually, because these tools aren't necessarily just for games. You People make all kinds of experiences in Unity and Unreal. So having these sort of things more accessible to everyone, I think, just you know, expands what people might experiment with in the future, especially if we get a down period from the hype cycle and people are just kind of in that build phase, like we've seen, you know, with Web3 or VR in the past, you know, couple of years. So very excited to see where that goes. But uh, speaking of VR and AR, uh, Niantic, unfortunately having some layoffs on their side.
2: Yeah, it's uh, been kind of a problem that's troubled the gaming industry and more specifically um, mobile games uh, I would say, for the better part of the last year. Uh, the Niantic news was particularly shocking because this was supposed to be a company uh, growing on all cylinders, inking all sorts of different licensing deals and third-party partnerships to develop uh, you know, the latest, greatest app on your phone. And now we have the news that they're getting rid of 230 uh, employees of their like roughly 1,000-member workforce, so about 25% layoffs uh that's mainly going to take the form of shuttering their uh office in Los Angeles um this wasn't the office responsible for uh Marvel World of Heroes which was an AR game uh in development uh obviously with the lucrative Mar- Marvel license so they really must have been losing a lot of money to close such a such a deal with Disney um and then NBA All-World uh which is another uh title uh, that's currently out there, not the most well received. If you look at the uh, reviews across the two app stores, um, but uh, that will be sunsetting. Uh, you know, I think this points to the huge investment that is going in right now to create the next like blockbuster games. Like I'm, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on with Activision, but the costs to develop new games has absolutely ballooned, and in this period of high interest rates. You can't really blame these companies for wanting to shore up profitability, even if it means um, not being super hyper growth anymore. Uh, it, I thought it was pretty interesting that CEO John Hank in his uh, letter to uh, all the employees there said that Pokemon Go is going to remain a forever game. This game has already been out for seven years, and you know it had its second wind uh, during COVID. When you know, if you just walked to Central Park, you could see like tens of thousands of people trying to find a, you know, shiny Gyarados or whatever. Uh, But uh, that game kind of feels like it's also becoming less and less relevant. And for that to be labeled as the forever game is a bit concerning. Like talk about concentration risk. Uh, That's not to say they don't have other games. Uh, Hank said they're going to focus on uh, Peridot. Peridot? Peridot? I don't know. It it ends with a T. Uh, And uh, Pikmin Bloom, uh, which is the partnership with nintendo obviously and various other titles but they've lagged a lot compared to pokemon go um it's just unclear that even with 750 remaining employees if you really need that many to support one title uh so i wouldn't be surprised to see other big moves hit uh that studio unfortunately
1: yeah i guess it's uh, not a huge surprise
0: Yeah, let's let's really talk about this a little bit because I think it's I think there are a couple things that are interesting here. Um, One is just the to me it maybe feels like a more sudden reversal of sorts because I feel like it wasn't actually that long ago that we were on the podcast talking about wow Niantic literally just announced all of these new um, all of these new projects and you know at the time we were like well Pokemon Go like is great Um, and you know I think. Most of us would probably view it as a forever game. I think it still is performing well, but basically everything else hasn't really moved the needle. So why should we expect all these other games to? But okay, we'll see how it goes. Um, And so it is a pretty sudden reversal from, you know, a month or two ago having all of these announcements to, you know, being like, you know, just taking more austerity measures. So there definitely was some hard conversation within Niantic, maybe around, you know, Fundraising efforts, or just calculating their burn rates, or recognizing that you know with the launch of the Vision Pro and the timeline there, that maybe the the timeline to like the the rest of their business really clicking and becoming revenue positive that's going to be longer than they thought. I don't know what it is, but they're clearly being more conservative um, in terms of how they're going to have to manage their their burn rates and their their focus. And so I understand it from from that perspective too um but yeah it's just it's just interesting to see the sudden reversal but also just kind of recognize that yeah like maybe like Niantic is not in the future it is more of a games business than not today but I don't think that's its goal its goal is to you know be something more like the google maps uh, like or a a map based api for like the 3d physical world and then all and be able to support all the cool things people are going to create with that, and games are just sort of a kind of a stepping stone to to getting to that future. Um, but if they think that's further out, um, then yeah, making some of these hard hard decisions and having big cuts that that sadly does make a lot of sense. But curious what what
3: you think, Matt and Devin. I, I would agree. I mean, I think I was on that same podcast episode with you when we were talking about it last, and you know, my recollection is Pokemon Go was making you know, like five to $8 million a day, something like that. Like it's, it's yeah. still pretty lucrative, uh, for a game that's that old. Um, but to your point, Aaron, about it, about Niantic being a company that's like more interested in AR and like Google maps type software. I, th- I think that's right. I think Pokemon go is like, despite most players probably not using the AR features, it was like a really successful kind of proof of concept for their software and um, all of these kind of follow-on games have been much less successful, um, and you know, we can speculate as to why that is. Maybe it's the IP. Maybe it's just not like that compelling of a you know game design. Um, I don't know. Um, but um, I agree with you, Aaron, that like they want to do more in the AR like physical world um, realm. I just don't know that they've really figured out how to do that. Um, and now yeah with this with this news like taking austerity measures, um, you know cutting some games that were not performing or in the case of the Marvel game, probably they just saw the writing on the wall like user acquisition is really expensive and maybe these uh, soft launch kpis are not what we would like them to be and they just made the you know financial calculation like you know we need to just stop this expense right now before we go deeper in the hole I'm speculating of course, but this is my read on it
1: yeah. Having, having watched kind of the history of like location-based gaming for, for quite a long time, like and even participating in helping make some, uh, in the past, uh, I have to say in general, location-based gaming is not a compelling experience for most people. Uh, it's a, it's a novelty, it's a gimmick. And, uh, and if you look at the history of what Niantic Niantic's built, the AR was never a big part of the experience. It was always the location-based gaming. And that like, that found a perfect niche with Pokemon Go where it was like, this makes absolute sense for the IP, like just perfect. Like this is what Pokemon generally is walking around doing exactly this. And so it was, it was a perfect fit, right? But then after that, it was like just shoehorned these things in. like NBA was just like the perfect example of like just not a good fit at all. Like I'm sure they had the reasons for doing it. But then you look at more recent uh, releases like Peridot, where they actually tried to go the other direction and lean away from the location-based gaming and more on the AR side. Uh, And having played around with that, you could kind of see some of the glitchiness of it. And like, they have a good AR platform, but I think this is the problem they're stuck in. Location-based gaming is not a great experience until AR is like fully there and portable. AR is not even close to fully there and portable. So like, you know, as you guys mentioned about, Apple and, and, and their AR stuff and these AR experiences in general, until they get there, like there's, there's honestly not a compelling use case for Lightship even their, their, their whole AR SDK. So they're in a tough spot with what they're trying to do business wise, like trying to find some other IPs to fit with like other Nintendo ones, even like Pikmin. But if you've played that game, it honestly is kind of a boring game in the sense of just like you're planting stuff and maybe the IP fits a little bit, but the actual gameplay experience just isn't there.
2: Yeah, I think, I think part of the problem was when Reality Pro's price tag was revealed at $3,500. You know, it kind of shot down uh, a lot of people's hopes that AR was going to be consumer grade um, sooner rather than later. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the talks began shortly after that, because it's hard to imagine someone sporting a $3,500 device if they can even afford it and walking around cities, um, you know, and trying to stay safe while doing that. The funny thing is we're
1: not even really that far away from this stuff working with the Unreal slash Xreal stuff. If you added a camera to that tech, like to those glasses, like then we actually can be there because it's just your phone screen with a camera added and like that would actually make their experiences, you know, what they're trying to build basically work because it'd basically be portable. You'd have just sunglasses on. Like we're not actually that far away from potentially like shoehorning it in, but no one's really trying to drive towards that. Like everyone's thinking about what Apple's doing.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that's probably an astute observation, Mario, that they probably were kind of waiting out to see what the, the Apple release was really going to be and what reception to that uh, was going to be before they make a bigger decision. I think that's probably right. The the very last thing I'll say about this topic is just, thank God Niantic has Pokemon Go. Because think about it, right? Like This is a company that got founded in 2010. And just think about how off their timing has been in terms of making a bet on AR becoming a, a more of a mainstream thing. They were very, 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 very wrong um, in their their timing, and it still looks like it's a few years away. And honestly, you have to ask the question: like, if they did, if they do not have Pokemon Go, <laughs> what would this company even be at this stage? Like, what would the layoffs and kind of look like from here? Um, so. Thank goodness they have it, and that Pokemon Go is able to you know subsidize the development and enable them to to ride this timeline out longer, even though their their timing their bet on timing was off in the first place. It really is so lucky that they <laughs> that they stumbled across what a sensational hit Pokemon Go was. My goodness
1: like how you say that as if, as if like Pokemon was was ever really a big risk, right? In terms of the IP, it, it's guess. such a strong IP. Like, it makes a lot of sense. But uh, on the opposite side of layoffs, we've got an uh, acquisition. Uh, Scopely picking up a company. Yeah,
0: I'll keep this one um, pretty short. So it was recently announced that Scopely is acquiring Tag Games, which is a mobile development partner. They've worked with a ton of big publishers and, and studios over the years. I think the entire team is like 60 employees, and they're all getting acquired and coming over to ScopePlay in this deal. Uh, They've worked on games like CSR2, Angry Birds Action, Prison Architect Mobile, and just (laughs) many, many um, other games for for various partners over time. Um, And so this is not a big acquisition by ScopePlay. It's definitely not even in their top five in terms of you know being noteworthy. They're not really acquiring a game here or a product. It's it's acquiring. talent that's going to help build and run all sorts of internal um, games, I I imagine, as they're kind of staffing up more for, you know, live ops expansion across their entire portfolio, I'd guess. Um, The only reason I mention it is because I think it's just worth keeping an eye on Scopely and more broadly Savvy Games Group. When I was on, I think it was last week, we were discussing like what to keep an eye on for, for the rest of the year or just going forward. And uh, my answer was just you just got to watch who has the money like who has capital to deploy and Savvy Games Group has about as much as anyone in the industry that they're looking to put into work and I I don't know if Scopely is officially part of Savvy yet it's still the deal still might be closing but either way part of this umbrella it's just worth keeping an eye on these companies that are having access to tremendous capital and if you kind of look at all the little pieces you can probably start to stitch together what this broader, what the broader story and narrative is going to be. And with Scopely, I think it's pretty clear that um, when when the deal officially closes and they fall under Savvy, there's going to be some new phase for the company that they're going to be able to, to reinvest, deploy more capital to expand in all of these different directions. And maybe, maybe, maybe the, this deal has a small piece to do with, you know, like preparing to you know, staff up to get ready to expand in in new directions um, or just tackle new ambitions in the future. So not, again, not a huge deal when you just look at this one this one specific acquisition, but maybe in the broader puzzle of what Scopely and Savvy are, are working on, what they're cooking up, um, it's, it's just worth noting.
3: Yeah, I think you make a good point, Aaron. Um, you know, I, the, I think Scopely has been pretty open about pursuing PC console as a next... Um, Avenue of expansion for them. Uh, I don't think, I don't know that Tag Games is going to uh, contribute towards that. Just looking at the article, it seems like their expertise is m- mostly mobile. Um, but in terms of strategy, it seems like they're going towards PC console. That said, um, there's always, it's always good to have talent in house, right? And we're increasingly seeing these bigger publishers snatch up like third party studios or studios that they've worked with in the past. That's definitely been Scopely's approach where they'll. Uh, collaborate on a game. They'll maybe make a a small investment in the company. And then if that goes well, they acquire the company outright and bring them into the fold. Um, So, you know, from my perspective, it's like Scopely is continuing to grab talent and build up their organization. And as you say, Aaron, they have all this capital that they're going to start looking to deploy. And um, I think they're going to, they're looking to be a major player um, to compete with that sort of next tier up of EA, Square Enix, who we'll talk about in a little bit, Take Two, and so on—these like multi-platform, international publishers with a, a massive global footprint.
1: Well, hopefully, if anything, with you know, given all the layoffs, you know, as we were just talking about, uh, this is something that guarantees maybe a little bit of job security for that talent uh, for a little while, so maybe they're safe. Like maybe it's a situation as well that maybe Tag wasn't. In a great position to be able to keep things going, and this was a a way to make sure that their, its employees had. I mean, just just speculating on possibilities as well, but uh, I, overall, hopefully, a good thing for those employees. And and you never know, even like with them being mobile talent, uh, there's a lot of mobile games even coming over to PC and uh, there's always free to play stuff on there and um, you know, maybe eventually moving on to console as well. So, so their expertise with things like live ops and stuff like that is still definitely, I imagine applicable. Uh, but I mean, we'll see, hopefully we don't see layoff announcements after. And it's not just like one of those things where they just kind of strip mine it. Uh, and instead it's about building up talent, but, uh, yeah, uh, the Square Enix thing you just mentioned a lot to I think to chew on in this one.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'll, I'll try not to talk for like ten minutes here, and maybe we can break this up into a few segments. But um, the the sort of intro here is that uh, we've got a, a I've got a piece coming out in Novic Digest uh, in the next day or so, um, sort of taking a look back at at Square Enix and a number of recent happenings that I, I think are worth keeping an eye on. So. Um, the, the one that probably most of you have heard about is the launch of Final Fantasy 16. Um, this is their mainline title, um, and it seems like it's done fairly well in the early days. Um, mostly positive reviews. I saw like high 80s on Metacritic. Um, there was also some, some review bombing, which I'll touch on in a little bit and why that's happening, but mostly positive reviews for their mainline release. Uh, so we'll talk about Final Fantasy a little bit, but also um, at the end of May, they announced their fiscal year. 23 um, earnings, and they're kind of disappointing. Um, this this would have run from April, uh, I believe, April of 22 to March of 23, um, and just to kind of like preview that, total revenue was down six percent, digital revenue down 12 percent, profit down three uh, percent, all year over year figures. So not great results, and then this comes. Uh, this is the con- completion of the second year in a three-year medium-term business plan, is what they call it, um, which is it's sort of like a, a larger strategy for the company to uh, improve its uh, financial prospects and streamline the organization. So we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. And then the final piece, um, sort of bringing this all together, is that they uh, Square Enix just unveiled its new ceo to the world or he just took the helm rather uh and he um he had an appearance at a pre-launch party for final fantasy 16 pre-launch event where he kind of took the stage and really endeared himself to the fans talking about how he grew up playing final fantasy and he's really a gamer at heart he's younger um than uh, the previous uh, ceo he's in his uh, mid 40s late 40s i think um, and trying to bring that sort of gamer's perspective, fans' perspective uh, to the corner office. So these are all the things that are happening and that cause me to like want to reflect on what's going on with Square Enix. So let's talk about um, Final Fantasy first. So look, the game is, it seems to be doing well. It's clearly a different. Direction and they've been going in a different direction for a little while with the Final Fantasy VII remake, Final Fantasy fifteen. These are all more like action RPG as opposed to turn based. I believe they brought in like a, a really senior design person from Devil May Cry to do the uh, combat for this game. Um, but you know, I had a look at their IP generally, and Final Fantasy is definitely the biggest one. They've got Dragon Quest, they've got Kingdom Hearts, a couple others. Um, but where this connects to the issues around publishing is that all of their major Final Fantasy releases have taken five to 10 years or more to release. Uh, and so, you know, one of their, one of the things that Square Enix has talked about wanting to do is focus on fewer titles, but at a, um, higher cadence that have a a global appeal. Um, so, you know, let's just start there. Um because I realize I'm rambling a little bit like, you know, we had the news last, uh, last year, I guess it was, or earlier this year about Embracer taking Crystal Dynamics away from Square Enix. They want to streamline their publishing. They want to focus more on Final Fantasy. Um, what do you all think about this strategy? Do you think that it's reasonable for them to try and get their production timelines down to five years or less for (laughs) these major titles? Let's say, um, there's a lot there, so take it wherever you like to take it, and we can come back to some of the other topics. I can start. Um, so,
0: I suspect that Final Fantasy still is probably the main growth engine of this business going forward, and maybe they can shrink production timelines a bit. I don't know. I think, if anything, you know, they can probably just reinvest in expanding the Final Fantasy ecosystem and to, to ensure that even if the, the turnaround between the main games is long, that they still can get their remake engine, um, you know, flowing at a rate that's, you know, better than in the past and that create upside that, you know, their MMORPG, you know, maintains a good, healthy cadence and, um, you know, is able to, to maintain, if not grow over time. And I don't even know too much about Final Fantasy on mobile other than that there just have been a ton of random games um, published over time. But to me, the, it strikes me as an opportunity to focus in some kind of way to make more just like one bigger, better, long standing mobile game. So I don't know if the opportunity with Final Fantasy is just reducing production timelines. Maybe I <laughs> I can't really say, but it still strikes me like there is opportunity elsewhere in the ecosystem to kind of grow it out, um, make it make the, the engine there more robust. Um, but beyond Final Fantasy, even like I think f- the challenge with Square Enix is like, all right, if you want to take focused bets and you want to, um, y- you know, like focus on bigger, more focused IPs, it's just sort of a question of like, well, If it's going to be something beyond Final Fantasy, what's it going to be? And I don't think there is a super clear answer to that question. Like, it's probably not Kingdom Hearts. It's not Octopath. It's not, you know, Life is Strange. Unfortunately, it's not going to be forespoken. Um, You know, definitely not Foam Stars. Um, And so where does that (laughs) leave you? Probably Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest is probably, like, the next best bet that they would try to build out in some kind of way. Maybe they can make it more... Reinvent it to some degree to make it more Western friendly and make it just like a bigger global hit. I that that's probably like the best I can come up with. But none of this happens with the flick of a switch, right? These are all things that you have to build up to over a span of years. And so um, maybe whatever the next medium term plan is going to be, and maybe in this next next letter to shareholders that the new CEO uh, publishes, maybe he'll he'll lay out some of this stuff. But that's my
3: that's my best guess. My best shot at <laughs> what this could look like, Aaron. I, I get the impression that you weren't blown away by the SpongeBob DLC announcement for Power Wash Simulator. Oh.
0: <laughs> that one slipped by me somehow. I wonder why. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I completely agree with you, Aaron. That Final Fantasy is going to be the breadwinner for Square Enix going forward. You know, as it had been with Square uh, when the, when the first one came out. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that the company isn't like a crisis like it was, uh, when Final Fantasy one came out that led to that game being renamed what it was. Uh, but certainly they have to, um, think about what the timeline is going to look like for future releases in that franchise, as well as in their other franchises as well. You know, Final Fantasy, uh, 16, uh, seven years is, I think, don't quote me on this, but the longest gap between mainline installments uh and uh you know final fantasy 14 like is an mmorpg like they they need to also think about the naming convention for their games because it's getting to be a little confusing you know i i think the ex-ceo commented on this but uh you know having the single player story driven games i think titled one thing and then having the games that are going to incorporate some form of live live ops or MMORPG elements be another thing, I think it's super important to delineate those, because you're right, it's not very Western friendly. I mean, it's not friendly at all to any gamer uh, to have the games titled like that. Um, Also, when it comes to Dragon Quest, you know, Dragon Quest 12, uh, it looks like it's going to come out this uh, next year probably, Um, maybe later this year still, but probably next year. That's a seven-year gap between installments. Again, one of the longest between main lines there and yeah, there's, there's not a ton of other IP to draw from that is going to sell tens of millions of units per installment.
3: I'm just waiting for the in- inevitable move to announce the next Final Fantasy as just Final Fantasy or Final Fantasy 1 like Mortal Kombat did. And they just reset the counter, start over again. Um, um, so you made some good points, Mario. I just want to add a little bit of context here. So, so you, people understand um, the the other IPs they have to work with and sort of the structure of the business. So they have this digital entertainment um, business unit, which is where all of their gaming content uh, exists. And then that's further subdivided into what they call HD games, which is usually PC console. Uh, that's where Final Fantasy single-player experiences live. Even some of the smaller titles like Octopath Traveler or Power Watch Simulator, those go into HD experiences. Um, then they have MMOs, which, as far as I can tell, is just Final Fantasy 14 and Dragon Quest X. Um, and then they have, uh, they call it, like, um, experiences for smart devices and web browsers something like that. So let's just call it mobile for for um, the sake of discussion. And of the like top 10 games in mobile, according to Data AI, within their last fiscal year, three of those 10 were Final Fantasy titles. Um, and you know, Final Fantasy fourteen, easily the biggest contributor to the MMO segment, HD segment. It's obviously your Final Fantasy mainline titles. So I don't know if if we feel there's like a lot of risk there, like putting all their eggs kind of in that basket. But in terms of developing new IP, um, you know, they've, they've not said much in that regard. Obviously, Forspoken didn't really turn out like they wanted it to. We've got Kingdom Hearts coming down the the pipe at some point. They've got a couple other titles that don't seem to be moving the needle, um, and you know. Uh, I guess where I'm taking this is the medium term outlook for the company is a little bit murky. So this is the last fiscal year of their medium term business plan. They're not going to hit the targets that they had set out for themselves a couple of years ago. Uh, there's, just, there's just no way their own forecasts are coming in well below those. And in terms of, you know, strategic moves that they announced in this you know earnings report, um, you know, nothing that would really um, blow anyone away. They're talking about acquiring more talent, you know, revamping their, their publishing organization to kind of streamline it a little bit more. But they haven't really announced any major moves in one direction or another, other than like their longer term future, which they're really all in on blockchain right now. We can talk about that in a little bit. They've made a bunch of investments in blockchain startups across the world, talking about establishing a corporate venture capital arm in their business they focused on being a pioneer in that space but we're not there yet and and there's this this gap of like what do they do in the medium term what does their next medium term plan look like and there have been you know so there was some news again coming from microsoft activision that um you know square enix was a potential acquisition target for microsoft as early as 2019 to bolster game pass and give them a presence in asia um you know, I don't know that, that Microsoft would be the company to do it, but acquisition is something that's been rumored for a while. Sony has obviously been a part of that conversation, being a, a fellow Japanese company as well. So, you know, maybe there's something there in the medium term where they become a, an attractive acquisition target for Sony or Tencent or Nexon or whoever. Um, well before they get to this whole blockchain thing, I think that's still quite a ways away. So, like, what do they do in, in the medium term? Uh, and, and do we see them maybe getting involved in, in some of these acquisition talks like and also they have a brand new CEO like, you know, what does he think? I think the
0: medium term is doubling down on Final Fantasy, <laughs> uh, which isn't necessarily a bad idea. Like, I don't think putting all your eggs in one basket is actually as big of a risk when you have such a dominant killer IP. Like we saw, you know, similar concerns with a company like Activision with Call of Duty. Where it's like, oh man, Activision for years is not really creating anything new. But, you know, they just kept building up the Call of Duty ecosystem. And it was a tremendous growth driver for that business across devices, across business models. And I think the biggest and best IPs in the world, they can't copy exactly what Activision did, but there is more more, you know, opportunity opportunity to unlock with these with these mega IPs. And so I think Final Fantasy is going to be the centerpiece of a medium-term plan. I think it has to be. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think probably identifying if they want to make more focused bets, like, all right, well, what is that going to be? Like, what are the next couple focused bets around either creating a new IP or just taking an IP you have and making it more globally friendly or more multi-device friendly <laughs> or, or something um, I, I would imagine that would kind of be the center. I have a feeling some of this blockchain stuff, I think it's gonna come back to bite them, is my guess. And it's not because like I'm against it. I think that experimenting with the technology is great. But if you know, I think that the company just dedicated itself in a big way too early to so where even if it creates a great web three game in some kind of way, external forces like platform rules or securities regulations or just like onboarding and tooling frictions, it's just going to be too much to overcome in a big way. And it's just going to make the ROI on those projects less than it would be if they just reinvested elsewhere. Um, and so my guess is they're probably going to lighten their tone at some point regarding Web3 more because it's going to be forced on them by the investor <laughs> community who just like isn't happy with the, the progress. That's my guess. But um, you know, as they as they do that, they can just kind of refocus more on the biggest IPs and kind of building those ecosystems. And that's my guess as for a three year plan. But David, I'm curious, even what you think on the blockchain side. Do you do you think that's going to remain central to to Square Enix, or yeah, are they well, going to diversify or one, tone that down? One
1: sort of piece of context that I think is uh, important to know is. Uh, Japan has been really like uh, at the government level, really bullish on blockchain. And that I think, you know, you're talking about regulations and stuff like that. Yeah. in the U S like there's already a lot of companies just pulling out from the U S in general, not wanting to risk the, the Gensler wrath. Uh, So they're just not even bothering. And I think, you know, Japan's already fine with localized games, right? They do a lot of localized games, That are just like, this is a Japan game and they don't bring it elsewhere. And I think they're fine with that. So I think looking at it from that perspective, where they're just like, you know, maybe we just do Web3 in a place where we know is super friendly towards it, Uh, you know, like the prime minister came out being like, NFTs are going to be great. You know, like Japan's going to be, you know, on top of this. And so if you're a company that's a huge company in Japan and Japan's going like, we're going to dominate Web3, it does make some sense to be like, well, we want to be at the forefront of that. Now, like as you said though, like they are very early. I mean, their their first blockchain game Symbiogenesis is is what I call glorified where's Waldo with tons of lore involved. It's not necessarily like a bad thing for what they're trying to do with you know, they're all about their fiction and their lore and things like that. And they've they've made some money selling collectibles around Final Fantasy and things like that. So they definitely they they understand that there's some angle with community and lore and things that they can do that tap into Web3's community aspects. Uh, however, that community is a bit small in the the, the grand scale of things. Now, that being said, if, if Asia blows up, like we think it might over the next year or two between South Korea and, uh, and Japan and maybe elsewhere as well, like, I think that could still be, you know, important for Square Enix. Now, of course, if that doesn't happen over the next year or two, then yeah, maybe we see them be like, you know what, we're going to put that on ice for a while, like, and then just focus on our other stuff. And, and you guys mentioned like, even like Dragon Quest and stuff like that, uh, you know, there's opportunity for them to, to involve that potentially in some of this stuff, you, even if it's just collect, digital collectibles, right? They uh, they already did quite a bit of that with Final Fantasy and I think it was mostly successful. So I don't see any reason why they wouldn't continue to leverage their IPs into blockchain stuff, even if it's just at the collectible level, because there is there is an appetite for digital collectibles, even if you strip out all the other Web3 stuff uh, at that point. And, and, you know, there's an angle there for them.
3: They have a whole physical collectibles business too, so it's not that mm-hmm. you know much of a stretch.
1: Yeah, to, to to their like
2: quote unquote credit when it comes to blockchain. Now, like I don't agree with the strategy. I think they should be doubling down on their core franchises for something I'll, I'll talk about after this. But um, you know, the Final Fantasy games don't follow any sort of continuity. The Dragon Quest games don't follow any sort of continuity, and I think that's made them great because someone who is a new gamer can just jump in and not have to watch five hours of lore videos like I am with Diablo right now. Um, but uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, it's hard to have like a unbroken continuity like with the NFTs. It's not like you could have a character from one game that's going to transfer into another game. Each game has their own set of characters, their own environments, etc. Uh, so that kind of gives credence to them starting something fresh and maybe pursuing that strategy for the first time. Um, you know, in terms of the mainline installments, uh, I just don't see any reason why it took, took seven years to come out with a new Final Fantasy. Um, From Software is pumping out Soulsborne games every two to three years. Elden Ring is probably going to be the greatest game of the decade and one of the largest open world titles you know ever released um, for that genre, that is. Uh, and that took them three years to come out. And that was after Sekiro. So I like I understand there's differences when it comes to the graphical fidelity of the Final Fantasy games. They're obviously a lot sharper and, you know, quote unquote, more polished, but they all follow the same RPG elements and roughly the same formula. So I just don't see why those games can't come out on a more frequent cadence uh, for such a large studio.
1: I think that's probably where mobile makes the most sense, right? Like RPG is a huge, huge sector of mobile right now and it seems to be continuing to grow. Obviously a lot of competition in that space, but you see more and more anime-based mobile games, RPGs taking over like consistently. Uh, and a lot of them coming from, you know, China or South Korea or Japan, like coming over from those, you know, Asian demographics and there's a perfect opportunity there. Obviously, they've experimented with it. I still see like you know Chrono Trigger remastered on sale and like all these other ones that they've they've put on there like to test the waters on mobile. I don't think they're going to be like Nintendo where they like only are, are doing these weird sort of experiments. They they clearly have potential to bring stuff onto that that platform, and we're talking about like more frequent cadence. That's a good platform to be doing that on.
3: Yeah, and they, they um. Their previous approach, from what I can tell, has been to take different IPs, whether their own or external IPs, and bring them to mobile. Um, you know, Final Fantasy XV, for example, had, I was looking at something like six, seven, eight seven, eight spin-off experiences, some of which were mobile, some of which were not, but... That they just like they have this established IP and then they build off of it in different ways. To your point earlier, Mario, about like these characters not necessarily being interchangeable, they actually have mobile games that have all of their Final Fantasy characters as like a character collector gotcha thing. So I think it can be done. And they've certainly tried to do that. I'm sure that they'll, well, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I, my guess is that they'll probably continue something similar with Final Fantasy 16, do a mobile release. I don't know if they'll do another like 4X game or whatever, but, um, they have plenty of opportunities on mobile and the expertise to do it.
1: Definitely a lot of opportunities for there. And and of course, something we didn't even touch on, they do some stuff with arcades as well. Uh, You know, there's like you mentioned, Matt, lots of stuff with collectibles. They have a lot of businesses going on, a lot of opportunities, different things they could be doing. So uh, definitely a lot of things to watch for with Square Enix. And I I hope the web three thing works out for them, of course, because, you know, being a a big web three kind of guy, like I'd like to see that work. But, we have, uh, and we've already kind of, I think, touched on this multiple times uh, throughout the podcast uh, the revelations coming out of the, the FTC trial against uh, Microsoft Activision, which will hopefully be the ending chapter of this everlasting saga. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it'll be like the ending of Lord of the Rings, uh, where we get about five different endings to this thing. But uh, yeah, uh, we've definitely got some cool stuff to talk about. Hey, I hope. Yeah, I think
2: Microsoft wishes that the FTC is the wandering, and they're gonna cast them into Mount Doom once and for all, and you know, vanquish them from being a menace for the uh, mega cap tech uh, U.S. you know uh, companies. Uh, but you know, we yeah, we belabored this topic so many times, but it is just super important. You know, there, a seventy billion dollar acquisition is not only large when it comes to gaming. Or technology, even it's large, like in the grand scheme of things. This is one of the largest acquisitions of all time, especially for all cash, maybe the largest all cash acquisition of all time. Um, and the five day trial um, that recently wrapped up uh, revealed just a whole host of things, partially due to shoddy um, disclosures from all parties. You know, I, I think someone tried covering up. Um, of the disclosure with a like non-permanent marker, so we saw how much the cost of a AAA game uh, is, uh, which is something I'll touch on. But there was just a whole host of things. Um, you know, I-, I guess to sum it up, if a prelim- this is for a preliminary injunction, uh, what that essentially means is, if it's granted, the FTC will stop Microsoft from what it's trying to set out to do until a later trial date. So this is basically saying, okay. If this is granted, you can't do what you're trying to do, which is acquire Activision Blizzard, until later this year. And Microsoft's council has called that a potentially three-year bureaucratic nightmare. Um, so needless to say, if this injunction is not granted, the deal won't be going through. Um, Bobby Kotick has made that clear on the Activision side. Um, Phil Spencer has made that clear on the Microsoft side. Um, so, yeah, it's of paramount importance. Uh you know, if the injunction is granted, uh, it vindicates Lisa Kahn and the FTC um, in their ongoing crusade against mega cap tech. Uh, they have tried to block deals, like both large and small. Uh, if you remember last year, they even tried to block um, the acquisition of a VR fitness app within uh, by Meta, and that was a deal undisclosed, but reported to be between three hundred and four hundred million dollars. So a really small deal and. You know, luckily they failed in that. But again, that took almost a year to resolve. Uh, You know, I think my big question is, how does Microsoft evaluate gaming if the deal falls through? You know, one of the shocking admissions, I think, from day two was that they admitted they lost the console wars uh, in the last two decades, um, which would be since the beginning of the seventh generation. So the Xbox 360, uh, the Wii and the PS3, uh, having a 16% market share in 2021. So that means they have like about one-sixth of the gaming market, which is pretty small. Um, you know, Does Microsoft even continue with Xbox long-term if this deal doesn't go through? Uh, I think if you ask a lot of people, they would say, sure, like, they can't get rid of Xbox. That's such an important part of the company. It's the fourth biggest segment. But if you look at the numbers, it's only about one-tenth of the revenue. And I think in even smaller share of the operating income, which is something they don't break out. But, you know, that has the potential of making Sony and Nintendo uh, into a duopoly. Uh, You know, we've come from the late 80s, early 90s, where we had all these different console makers to now potentially two. like, let's say, in three to four years. So I guess my question to you guys to kick things off is, um, do you think such a draconian outcome could take place if the deal doesn't go through? Like, what do you think Microsoft's going to do without Activision Blizzard?
0: Yeah, I think it's possible. I think that it's, I think Microsoft's, or sorry, I think Xbox's future hinges on acquisitions to some extent. If they really want to maintain the Game Pass strategy, they can't just build all of these new games. Internally, they have to acquire franchises and such. And um, obviously, the Activision deal is like way oversized or just outsized. And so it gets more scrutiny. But even if it were to acquire something more in like the Bethesda, range again that would just get a ton of scrutiny all over again and i feel like they just would not want to deal with that over and over and over every time they try to do anything and so um at minimum it could change their strategy and what they try to do with game pass and at a maximum yeah it could cause microsoft to just rethink what the heck are we doing with with xbox i don't know what that ultimately leads to a spinoff a sale Probably not shutting it down, I would guess. Um, maybe just deprioritizing it. I think the range of outcomes is really wide um, if the the deal doesn't go through. But uh, yeah, it's typically more bad, more bad than good for them if it doesn't happen.
3: I was just going to ask, like, if it doesn't go through, why would they not just look to another target um, and try and acquire a different, smaller publisher? Um, it, it seems like that that would be the the path of, I mean, I, I know there's going to be resistance regardless of what whatever they do, but like that's what they, they, strategically they need to acquire these IPs, right? If Sony's going to keep doing the exclusive thing, which doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon, um, that was the I meant to mention that with Final Fantasy as well. It was a PlayStation exclusive, but if they're going to keep doing that, um, doesn't Microsoft need to continue to bring different IPs and publishers in house to? bolster their content catalog and also their development talent? I mean,
2: I, I think so. But the question is, do they want to provoke the FTC's ire? Because again, they've gone after acquisitions less than a billion dollars. You know, it's such a big administrative headache. And the disclosures are so... have such negative repercussions for, for the companies. Like Some of the disclosures that we saw were for Microsoft's cloud business and their security business you know, that has nothing to do with their gaming business, but it's an unfortunate revelation of the trial that during the discovery period, you have all of these different, um, you know, documents coming out. And yeah, I mean, those segments are growing a lot faster and have a lot better margin profiles than the gaming division. Uh, that could be why they don't want to acquire something else because they would have to make like five to 10 bolt on acquisitions to match the breadth of content that Activision would give them. And, it just would take so long, I can't imagine them pursuing that. But I could be wrong.
0: The the last thing I was gonna say is that the time it's like the timeline here that's like the the problem on top of just like regulatory approvals. Like if they tried to, you know, make another decent size acquisition, <laughs> they'd have to go through like the same thing all over again. And you know, the approvals for Activision, it's taken a year and a half. Like, do they really have that much time to spare again? And building up their Game Pass catalog in order to compete, or if they wanted to do several smaller acquisitions, um, I mean, one they couldn't be that small. They they need like IP that can move the needle, and so you know any one of those deals, especially if there's several of them, those will just take time to to happen. Still have to go through regulatory approvals, have to go through long timelines, and so my guess is that you could just start to see some impatience, and the longer that they like don't have these hits. Uh, in game pass just like the more angsty Xbox as a whole is going to be like from the bottom all all of the gamers all the way up to the top with Satya Nadella uh you know and kind of thinking about the role of Game Pass or Xbox in general. So yeah they they might try to have a plan B after this. I just think it's gonna it's not gonna be great. It's just gonna drag out. Um and maybe in the long run it's still fine, but lots of headaches in order to pull any
3: maybe this is like a naive point of view, but like, from my perspective, Microsoft is like a trillion plus market cap company, and they're going to outlast Lena Khan or anyone like they're, they're not going anywhere. And I think that they, uh, they have, they can sit, they can deal with headaches. They can, you know, wait and be patient if they need to. I I don't, I don't see that as like, like, again, maybe this is a naive point of view, but like, I don't see that as the major stumbling block. Yeah. There's like a shortage of, um, potential assets that could like match up to what Activision is or would have been, but if they're really intent on acquiring content, I think they probably have more resources to bring to bear legally than the government does. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems like they could wait it out if they wanted to.
2: Yeah. No. I mean, th- th- I think that's again like where it could go either way. Like you know, do they continue their gaming business? Do they not? Do they pursue more acquisitions? Do they not? It just adds so much variability to the process, but not volatility, because it is such a small component of Microsoft that, uh, you know, for Activision, it definitely has an element of volatility, and I'll touch on that right now. But for Microsoft themselves, I don't think you see the stock plummeting or surging if the deal doesn't go through. And again, like, I think, depending on who you ask, the deal could be a good thing or a bad thing for Microsoft. It is a huge cash outlay um, for potentially not a ton of benefit for the broader business, but... You know, when it comes to Activision, uh, in prepping for this podcast, I put together a list of pros and cons. Um, because, again, I, I think it's a lot more impactful for Activision stock than for Microsoft stock. Um, and I could only think of two pros. Uh, and those are that Activision financials looked pretty good in Q1 2023. Uh, operating income rose by 70%. Um, all the segments are growing pretty nicely again after a of doldrum period um diablo 4 the pre-sales were amazing the game has come out selling tons of units the game is critically acclaimed you know they couldn't ask for a better launch i think after those um three uh test periods that they had um in call of duty is still a key driver of growth and then the other pro is that the three billion dollar breakup fee it actually does boost activision's enterprise value by a bit it boosts it by five percent at the current Stock price, it would go from 56.4 to 59.4 billion. Um, that's a $3 billion breakup fee that has to be paid out by mid-July um, if there's no new terms renegotiated for the deal. Uh, but now, with that being said, there's a ton of cons. And I personally think Activision stock shakes out much, much lower than where it is now if this deal falls through. Uh, you know, One of the biggest cons is that we've only had limited financial disclosure since um, Q4 2021, um, their fiscal year, that is. Uh, they don't have to have granular reporting while being in the middle of an acquisition process, uh, and you know they've had no slide presentations, no earnings calls. So all of the data that us as investors would get um, immediately after would be kind of torrential, and who knows if it would be good or bad? We only have kind of the top line to work with. Um, Buffett also trimmed his stake from 5.6 billion um, to 4 billion recently, and. That didn't put a ton of pressure uh, on the stock um, because it is, again, in this merger arbitrage period. But, you know, he did buy the stock for merger ARB purposes. And the way merger ARB works is either the deal happens or it doesn't. So either the stock goes to 95 or Berkshire is going to dispose a huge chunk of their shares. Um, Definitely the shares that they bought between their initial $1 billion stake before the announcement and this latest tranche, which is, you know, 75% 75% of the holdings, um, and that's going to weigh on shares. That's going to be a huge block trade if it happens. Uh, also, valuations are down significantly since the deal announcement. Uh, you know, the multiple is like over 20x when looking at operating income for a, such a mature gaming gaming publisher and developer. I find it just hard for it to stay there, um, especially because there's no other natural buyer for Activision who's going to spend tens of billions of dollars and deal with the nightmare that is the FTC.
1: Well, hopefully at the end of the day, if the deal doesn't end up going through, then they can still find a way to like get back to normal and, and pump out those Call of Duty games and, and all the other billions of sequels. They'll undoubtedly be pumping out of all their franchises. But uh, yeah, a lot of question marks still as, as, of course, things aren't done with that whole long journey and so i'm sure we'll be back at it again probably next week but uh we do actually have a uh, a mailbag question we wanted to quickly get to uh and, and this is in reference to an episode we had a little while ago uh and where we talked a little bit about the company keywords which was kind of a lesser known company so i'll just read out the question uh and the the, the comment real quick uh, and then we'll get to answering it so the the um they said, super cool that you guys covered keywords. Could you go deeper into the company health or financials? Do they have any major competitors? And how is their strategy unique in the market? Where do they get their competitive edge from? So Aaron or Mario, if you want to take this, Mario, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I can uh, I can kick things off. Um, so for those of you who don't know, keywords is one of the largest like gaming companies by employees. Like they have 12,000 employees, but they're deliberately under the radar. And part of that is due to their CEO's vision to be the picks and shovels servicer to the games industry, uh, rather than to, and I quote, bite the hand that feeds them. Uh, so they have three segments. Um, those are, uh, I have them right here, uh, create, globalize, and engage. Uh, Create is about 40% of the business, and that covers external game development and co-development. Code it also covers art services. Uh, Globalize is 44%. That's kind of what they're known for, their bread and butter. Uh, localization services like translation um, for audio and test, text, also quality assurance and testing. And then Engage, which is multilingual player support, you know, backend support, uh, a full-service marketing strategy. Uh, from a financial perspective, they're super healthy. They have over $700 million revenue annually, 20% EBITDA margins, and they're only trading at like a 12X uh, EV to EBITDA multiple, which is really low for a company that just grew 22% organically last year, which again was their highest growth rate since 2016. Uh, but they've been punished by the market. Um, and it's hard to say why. Um, my theory is that people are fearing the incursion of AI, You know. AI, what one of the easiest things it might be able to do is like localize content and convert text and audio to a native language. But I don't think it can deal with the nuances that come with localization um, in markets like Germany and China that all have bespoke um, content screeners that need um, boots on the ground and a lot of different offices dealing with all this stuff. So I think the concerns are overblown. And For context, a stock is down like 40% year to date, down even more from its peak in 2021. Uh, one of the worst performing um, gaming stocks, uh, of like large gaming stocks of the year.
0: Yeah, I'll add um, two more final, final thoughts here. Um, one is just that it's important to to know that Keywords is very acquisitive. And so its performance usually is just as much a bet on the pilot as it is on the plane, so to speak. Um, And I don't have a great sense of how good they really are, or more specifically, how good the relatively new CEO Bertrand Bodson is at Capital Allocation. And as Mario was saying, the stock's down a lot. It's basically where it was like five years ago at this point. And I, I have a feeling kind of the growth by acquisition bent to this company is a big big reason why the, the stock is down, kind of in the same way we've seen growth by acquisitions elsewhere in the industry um, kind of fizzle out as just bad deals have been made and just companies have to reset. Um, the last thing, just to answer the question about competitive advantage, um, if you look at any individual piece or segment of this business, whether it's external game development, or art services, or localization, etc., there's a ton of competition individually around each of those pieces. But when, but what makes Keywords somewhat unique is that um, it likely creates outsized value from having all of those offerings take place under one roof. Um, and so it can, if it can work with a, a big company and simplify their lives by not needing to go to a dozen or more different companies. Um, and instead, they can just use keywords that that is a value unlock for a lot of people just in simplicity of of operating. And, you know, if that's and, you know, as keywords expands its capacity and adds more capabilities, that becomes even more the case. And I, I'm not really sure to think about the AI stuff yet, but um, I don't think that competitive advantage is ironclad, but that's kind of where it comes from, I think.
1: Cool. Well, hopefully that answers your question, uh, listener. Uh, Obviously, we we look forward to more questions and more feedback and all kinds of stuff from you guys. Uh, To shoot that out, just podcast at navic. Make sure to let us know what you think. Any things you'd you'd like to us to cover more on? Like, uh, you know, this was something from a while ago. We we're happy to dig into more with more details. And, uh, and be a great source for business of games information for everyone out there. And of course, look forward to all the upcoming stuff that Aaron mentioned at the beginning about the updates to the newsletter, Digest stuff, and uh, lots and lots of content coming your way. And of course, as always, thanks to our panelists here, uh, Matt, Aaron, and our new panelist, Mario. Look forward to him again in, in a few weeks or so. But uh, thanks you guys for being here. And of course, thanks to the listeners. And we'll catch you guys next week. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review.